Good morning. It's good to hear Donna Wheeler's voice out there this morning. If you're at home this morning and can't be with us, uh, we are praying for you and uh, we long for the day to have you here again with us. Uh, Abby, thank you for reading. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I went uh, to the eye doctor. I'd been just a few months before and had a normal checkup and everything was fine and Then I started having problems out of my right eye. I couldn't see clearly, no matter what part of my progressive lens. uh, It wasn't working. Actually, it was working backwards, so I thought maybe they got the lens and they turned it upside down. And so I went back to the eye doctor, and he gave me an exam and did all that eye doctors do. And he came back and he said, well, I've got some bad news for you. He said, there's this thing that people in their 70s get called cataract. You've got it. Welcome to the club. You're going to need a new lens at some point in the near future. It's a reminder to us what John is doing in the book of Revelation. If you just popped in today for the first time and all you heard was what Abby read just a minute ago, or if you've been around the book of Revelation before, you can sometimes be confused about it, but it's a reminder to us that John wants us to see what he saw. He wants us to behold what he beheld. The book of Revelation means to make clear, to make known, to unveil, to reveal, not to keep secret or to confuse. The last couple weeks in Revelation chapter 4, what we have seen, what what we have beheld is a throne. And someone is seated on that throne. And remember the good news, it's not you, nor is it supposed to be you. God is on His throne. And He is a God to be feared. And yet, He is not to be afraid of if you are a Christian. You're not a Christian. He is one to be afraid of. But if you're a Christian, He is to be feared and loved and adored. He is at the center of all things. And today what we're going to do is we're going to see and behold that someone is at the center of the center. And the person we are going to behold is actually not a person at all. It is an image. It is a vision of a lamb. And it's a little grotesque, isn't it? with a throat that has been cut, standing and holding a scroll that causes all things, all creatures, to worship Him. Let's pray toward that end this morning as we open Revelation 5. God, thank You for the blessing of being together. Thank You for hearing Uh, The blessing of hearing Your Word sung and hearing Your praises declared. Thank You for the blessing of hearing Your Word read. And today we pray, O God, that You would indeed open the scroll. You would break the seals. And the seals that remain upon our hearts, God, You would open them again. And if there are those, God, who do not understand Jesus, they have listened to maybe religious leaders or the culture or their own understanding, would you open the seals for them today that they might behold the Lamb? 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We begin this morning, as your outline says, with a grave dilemma. A dilemma of great gravity. This week, my wife and I were cleaning out our basement, the bad side of the basement where everything was stored, and it just sat there for about a year and a half, and we didn't want to touch it. And finally, we decided we would get in there, and we started going through all these old things. And I found this old letter that she had written to me back in the day when our children were small. And I was struggling being a dad. And I was struggling being a young minister. And I was about to go off to training. And it was this beautiful, kind, loving letter that said, I'm praying for you. I am with you. I'm in your corner. And then I promptly lost it. I thought I threw it away. And I was in a dilemma. But a dilemma not like this. I'll tell you what happened later to the letter. But... What John has is a much more grave dilemma. This wasn't just a love letter from my wife. This grave dilemma is something even more, more, more grave. And basically, let me try to summarize before we get into the text to help you understand what is going on here. What is signified here, the dilemma is this, that if this scroll isn't opened... Things are going to remain as they currently are. Let me say that again. The drama and the dilemma of this passage is that things could possibly remain as they currently are. And for some of us and some part of us, we're just okay with that. We know things are kind of messed up. We know the world's messed up, and we know we've got problems and problems in our life, but we want to go back to a day when it was kind of better, or we want to hope for a better future, or we want to take ourselves and our little world and get in our little bubble and stay away from the problems of the world, and as long as we have that security and that comfort, then it's just okay. Let's keep on keeping on. And what John is showing us today is that is not the case. That is a terrible, grave dilemma, and he wants you to feel it. Chapter 4 is more like a setting, a stage, right? If you've done theater, you have the stage with all the things out on the stage, but chapter 5 is what takes place on that stage. It is the drama, and it is a tearjerker. It begins with terrible news, and John wants you to feel that. Look at verse 1. Then I saw, and there are lots of sights and sounds and noises and action and and drama in this text. Just, Just listen to it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember the throne. You've got the Ancient of Days. You've got God of gods. He's He's the true king. He is to be feared. And he's sitting on this throne, and he's holding a scroll. And there's Things written on the front and the back, and it is sealed with seven seals. So you have God on his throne with this scroll. And the scroll is full. If you go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel had a scroll that he ate, and it was written on front and back. In other words, it was complete. The Ten Commandments were written on the front, and they were written on the back. It's exactly what God wanted. And yet, here's part of the dilemma. 
There are seven seals on this ancient scroll. See, in the ancient world, a king, as many of you know this, a king, when he wanted something accomplished or wanted something done, an edict, he would write on this scroll, he would wrap it up, and he would seal it, and he would take his signet ring, and he would squish it into the wax, right? And then he would authorize someone to open the scroll and read or execute his purposes. That's what's going on here. And yet the dilemma is this. It is completely shut. I could not find any commentator to comment on this. I asked a couple friends. So don't take this for, for you know, this is the authority of God here. But there's something about the idea that there are seven seals, right? It is completely, perfectly shut. Do you see the dilemma? See, the, 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 the problem here, the dilemma is that God's plan for the world will not be accomplished. God's always had a plan. From before the creation of time unto the end. And yet it all hinges on someone and something to be accomplished. And in a sense, you could condense this, this dilemma into this. That God is in control and rules and reigns over everything. And, what, and the reason this is so important, what's going to start happening in chapter 6 is a lot of judgment, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of issues, famine, sword, plagues, things that we don't like to talk about and think about. And what this text is saying, those are either happening haphazardly, randomly, Noah in, is in control of these things, or someone is executing those, and they're going to end in a glorious conclusion. See, God's plan to be executed is His purpose that all things will be, be uh, led and, and, and overseen and reigned by Christ on His throne. And that Christ is over all of the judgments and all of the stuff that is to come and it is all going to a perfect, glorious conclusion. All the, the sequences of the seals and the, 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 the bowls and all these things end with this sort of, let's, let's look at this and it's going to end beautifully. And at the end of the book of Revelation, that's what happens. This glorious new creation, this glorious conclusion. Hope I didn't confuse this. This is so tricky to condense, but basically God's plans and purposes for the world won't happen and they will not end well. Sad, bad, and ugly when John gets that dilemma in verse 2 I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals who is worthy who can reign over this who can execute this verse 3 and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Do you see what John is saying? God is saying the angels proclaiming who is worthy to reign over this and execute this. And the response is no one. 
No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. That's the Bible's way of saying no creature can do this. No angel, no human, no animal, no idol, no family member, no king, no empire, no kingdom. Nadi, if you're Spanish. If you're from Cambodia, sorry, but I'm going to butcher this. Kameen Sat, no one. And hence, what does John do? Verse 4, he weeps. And the text says loudly. This isn't like a British stiff upper lip. This is a heaving, despairing weeping. Why? Because he sees the gravity of it. He sees the dilemma here. No one can reign over this. The world's just going to continue as it is. There is no hope. No final conclusion. No happy ending. No one can break the seals. This past Christmas Eve, my Bible was sealed. I got a new Bible and I had it for the Christmas Eve service and you can ask Barb and Fran about this. I forgot what to do with the candle and I started getting nervous and I was shaking and the Wax started dripping on my hand, and then I had to go down these aisles and do all of y'all's, and it kept dripping. And what I didn't know is it actually dripped on my Bible. A couple days later, I was trying to open it in the back, and I couldn't. It was stuck. It was sealed. And I noticed there was a big thing of wax. That's not a dilemma, is it? I can still open the Bible. What John is saying is, I, I want you to see this dilemma If there is no Jesus, there is no hope. If there is no Jesus, there is no restoration. If there is no Jesus, there is no redemption. All you have is an austere, glorious, holy, majestic, to be feared God sitting on a throne holding a scroll. That's all you have. Is that what you want? He's saying that's all you would have is a grave dilemma. Look secondly at the grace deliverer, verses 5 through 6. Verse 5, a word of grace. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Do you hear those gracious words? Look, if you just lost a child or lost a loved one and somebody, just don't, just stop crying, weep no more. (sighs) But if someone you know loves you and they have been through that before and they put their arm around you and they say, it's okay, weep no more. It's a little different. But think about Jesus and how often he said that. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that has authority here. It's starting to point to one who has the authority to say, weep no more. Your brother is not dead. Your son is not dead. Because Jesus has come from heaven. He's come from the land of the no mores. And he is now exalted to the land of the no mores, right? Jesus says, or John says, or the, I'm sorry, the elder says, and remember who this is. My best guess is this is 
This is representing the church, God's people, who were as close to the throne as they could possibly get, saying to John, weep no more. Behold, look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now, now, as we get to this part of the text in verse 5, I want you to think about this. When you hear the lion of the tribe of Judah, what, what we typically think in Revelation is what John is doing. And this is what I thought coming to this text. Lion, lamb, right? Yes, maybe. Lion, lamb. Juxtaposition. That's part of it. But that's not really what John is doing here. He's not saying, I want you to see a lion who's really a lamb. Part of it. What he's doing is this. He's saying, I want you to go back. I want you to think backwards. I want you to go where? To the Old Testament. A, a, a person in John's day would have heard the lion of the tribe of Judah and they'd have gone, Genesis 49. Well, actually, it wasn't broken up like that. Back They would have gone, oh, remember the tribe of Judah and God's prophecy that a lion would come from that and rule? Because look at the next thing. He says, the root of David. Going back to David. But notice this about this, this being that he's pointing to. He's saying, behold, I want you to see this lion and this root. He is from David. He is from Judah. He's from sinful men. But notice what he says. He's a lion. And he's a root. In other words, he's not a branch from David, which he was. He came from David's line. He is the root of David. He is the source of David. He is before David. This lion root is a man, but he's also what? God. See, we can't open the scroll. John gets that. God can as a man. Look again at verse 6. He also points back to this lion root as he wants us to behold him in verse 6 between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw what? A lamb standing. He could have said, I saw the lion, I saw the root, I saw David, the king, the Messiah, standing. That's not what he says. He says, I saw a lamb standing. Not a sheep, right? Sheep would be good enough. But the most fragile of animals, the weakest of animals, a baby lamb. You see what he's saying? Your holy, austere, glorious, majestic God is also a lamb. And boy, we struggle with that. We struggle with God being weak. He wasn't just weak, but look again at verse 6. Here's the grotesque part. He was slain. But notice John isn't trying to bring this up like a, like a scary movie or a gory movie. That's not what he's doing. The vision and image, again, should point us back to the Old Testament and the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, the Passover, the sacrifices, lamb, lamb, goat, bull, lamb, goat, slain, slain, slain. If you've ever seen an animal slain, you understand it's sobering. 
And John is saying this, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John is pointing to is that the one who is worthy to open the scroll first, he's saying his worth is contingent upon what he did. He conquered. Look at the word in verse 5. It's past tense. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He's saying this lamb is the one who conquered. And what did this lamb conquer by being slain? Here's the best part. I mean, we could preach a whole sermon on this. What the lamb conquered was our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not other people. Our greatest problem is not the government. Our greatest problem is not medical issues. It's not that we don't make enough money. Our greatest problem is sin. And the Lamb came to atone for our sin. Let me ask you this for just a second. Look, I, I know we're so sophisticated and so intelligent in our culture and we, we look on things like propitiation and sacrifice and the cross and judgment. We look at all that and we go, really? Really? Someone had to be sacrificed for me? God is not saying that you have to be sacrificed for you. Or that you should sacrifice a bunch of animals for you. That would, that, if, we, if we were stuck in the Old Testament, I'm telling you, I'd, I'd struggle with that. If Jesus never came. What God is saying is that I must be sacrificed for you. See, what, what, what he shows us is the Lamb, verse 9, actually frees you. He sets you free. What Eric quoted, he ransoms you. Ransom is when you, when you pay for someone to be set free. Let's go back to the point of the text, though. What John is saying is that Jesus' past work on the cross, his conquering as a slain lamb, is the very thing that qualifies him to open the scroll. What do I mean by that? Where do I see that? Real quick again, verse 5. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because for you were slain. Do you see the connection? What John wants us to see is that the very God-man who took our judgment, who handled that judgment for our sin, is uniquely qualified to handle governing and judging and ruling and reigning Everything throughout history, what we're going to see from 16 onward, he is exalted and he's uniquely qualified to handle all of that which culminates in a final judgment. And he finally ushers in the restoration of all things. Let me ask you this, Psalm 58 says this, do you judge, he's talking about idols here, the idols that we make in our hearts. Idols, do you judge the children of man rightly? No, you deal out violence on the earth. 
See, only the lion lamb, the lamb who was slain, who handles our judgment perfectly and does not deal out violence to us like our idols do. Our idols that say, here's the standard, you've got to meet it, and you never do or can, can you? And they just wear you out. And God says, that's not how I handle judgment. Matter of fact, I was judged for you. I've taken that out of your hands. You don't have a record of sin and guilt with me anymore. And that is what perfectly qualifies, as, as, as Abby read in John 5, that the Son is given authority to execute Judgment is what Paul says in Romans 1, that Jesus, by virtue of His death and resurrection, is declared to be the Son of God. Wasn't He already the Son of God? Yes, but now in this kingly, exalted way, He has this authority that He exercises that is uniquely tied to His own being judged for sin. You may not know the name Dave McConey, Dave McConey is from Portland, Oregon. He's about 57 years old. He's just a, a normal guy. He's a dad. He's a husband. Very soft-spoken, blue-collar. And he's also one of the few people in the world that is skillful enough and has the tools and is uniquely qualified to open safes that no one else can open. His most famous safe was an American century Mosler. They are full of what they call mousetrap relockers. When you try to get in them, they relock. If they sense any threat, they relock. They don't even let the person with the code get in. No burglar has ever defeated a Mosler. And yet... It so happened that the artist formerly known as Prince had an American century Mosler. They called Dave. Dave went to his safe, got out his tools, and he flew to Minneapolis. And there was a crowd of people, and everybody was watching, and he realized the only way you could possibly get into this safe was, was to drill this very fine hole with this very specific drill bit in this very specific spot, and if you messed up, the mouse traps would go off, and it's over. And not only that, once you got the hole drilled, you would take, yes, an endoscope, and you would put it through there, and you, that tiny camera would show you the code to get in the safe. Well, you might know the rest of the story. Dave McConey got in. But that's half the story. What happened once the door was opened? Over a thousand unpublished songs were now shared with the world. I struggled to find an illustration. I looked at about eight illustrations to try to illustrate what this text is saying. But what this text is saying is that there is only one person in heaven and on earth that is uniquely qualified to reign over all things, to reign over judgment. 
because judgment reigned over him. See, if you're a secular-minded person, you want the world to be ransomed. You do. You want things to get better. That's our whole understanding of progress. We want justice and we want peace and we want everything made new. But we don't want to say that God is the only one uniquely designed to do this. And if you won't go there You will fear God. And you should be afraid of God. Because you will one day look upon the Lamb who was slain and you will bow the knee to Him. And you will declare He was the only one to handle judgment and I rejected Him. And as C.S. Lewis says, what else is there that God can do for you? But if you're a Christian, look what you're swept up into. This is our final point, a lot shorter, I promise, verses 7 through 14. What you are swept up into is worship and worship and worship. A tidal wave of worship. A a crescendo of worship. If you know what a crescendo is, it's like this rising action. The sign forward in music is greater than, right? It gets greater and greater and greater and greater. And that's exactly what happens here in verses 7 through 9. What do they do? They declare the worth of the Lamb. They declare the worth of of the Lamb who is worthy to open and ransom people from every tribe nation. We'll get into that in a few weeks. And then there's like this second movement, this second wave in verses 11 through 12 where thousands, and the word myriad means millions, millions of people, like arenas and arenas and arenas of crowds cheering on Jesus the Lamb. And then it continues in verse 13, even though I just crescendoed with that point, my bad. Every living creature, every living creature gives praise to the Lamb. And it's so... so, um, Exciting that verse 14, what happens? Those closest to the throne that started it start worshiping again. And it just goes on and on. Why is this encouraging to a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, you live in this world of Rome and religion where where religion says, do this and you will live. And Rome says, do this and you will live. And Jesus says, look to me and what I've done and you will live. And, And you can be the little guy in the room and you can be the meek and the poor in spirit, and you get stepped on, and you feel like, this really isn't worth holding on to anymore, and God is saying, no, let me pull back the veil, let me give you new lenses, I want you to see this great cloud of witnesses, these arena of of, of creatures and beings worshiping God. One final thing, maybe you're like, Fritz, that's awesome for them, But I don't feel very motivated. I'm usually changing diapers, sitting at a computer, or trying to figure out how not to argue with my spouse. But do you know what this text is saying? That's part of your worship. It's all worship. And and the thing that The thing that fuels our worship here, and and he says it in verse 
9, a new song. What, what fuels a new song, a renewed song in Christians, is a new apprehension of the Lamb. Please hear this. See, we want to go to other things. We start with the Lamb, and then we go to higher things, or deeper things, or this, that, and the other. And that's what I love about the book in Sunday School. It's not saying deeper things out here, but going deeper into the center of the center. What causes the eruption? Look at verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. He went, the slain lamb, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And listen, here it is. When he had taken the scroll, it erupted. See, if just an austere, holy, beautiful, glorious God that we saw in chapter 4, if that's all God is, that's worthy of worship. But that's not the center. The center of the center, the center of what God wants to reveal to us that causes you to erupt and fuel your lifelong worship and obedience to Him is a lamb slain, exalted at the right hand of the Father, executing God's will. Let me say it like this as we close. When you are at the bottom, what do you need? An austere, holy, majestic God. Is that, that, that power, that, that, that's, a, that's beautiful, that's good. But you need that austere, holy, beautiful, majestic God to come close to you in your sin and say, I was slain for you. I really did take your judgment. When you're deep in a pit of sin, what do you see? You tend to see your condition, how you treated people, what you're thinking, and you go down these roads. And what you need, what you need to behold is a lamb with his throat slain, holding the scroll at the center of the center. He is the one that is uniquely qualified because He is the one who is conquered. Let's pray. Father, as I have wrestled for a month with this text, there is no way to adequately preach it. We probably could do just as well to read it over and over that it might elicit great worship and praise. Because the one who conquered is a lamb. And he is standing, not seated, he is standing at your right hand for us. He is the one that ransoms us. God, do your glorious, beautiful work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.